Men and women kill. Some because their religion commands it. Some even though their religion forbids it. Some kill because they have no religion and they can do anything. Christianity provides the only compelling reason for refusing to kill, to love, to be merciful, to be a peacemaker, to be charitable. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. you were going on trial in modern-day China or North Korea, you'd know that you'd be found guilty. It wouldn't matter if you were really innocent. But if you went on trial in Australia, you'd expect to get a fair trial. We have an elaborate system to make sure of that. But if all of the rules about giving you a fair trial were broken or ignored, and it was obvious that the people running the trial wanted to make sure that you were found guilty even though you weren't, you'd be in a state of shock and anger. Well, this program is the story of the most unjust trial under what was normally a fair legal system. So let's go back just briefly to when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus obviously caused chaos for the Pharisees who wanted to take him after the Passover when he told Judas in John 13, 19-38, "'That thou doest, do quickly.'" I imagine the Pharisees, when Judas came and saw them and told them what Jesus knew, thought they had to grab him before the next day in case he got to the crowds and incited them against them. They had to strike first, even though they weren't ready, even though they didn't want to act during the Passover. So let's look at everything that went wrong for the Pharisees from the time they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way up to the time that he was delivered to Pontius Pilate. It's a complete shambles, illegal, everything. The temple guards came armed to the garden. It was illegal for arms to be carried on a religious holiday. Strike one against the Pharisees. Then, as John 18.12 says, the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews which means the Pharisees, John always referred to the Jews as a reference to the Pharisees, took Jesus and bound him. That's strike two. The Jewish religious leaders had very thorough legal processes. It was illegal to bind a prisoner unless he offered resistance. Jesus had ordered Peter to stop resisting. The guards were also most likely acting on the clear orders of the Pharisees to bind Jesus. The Pharisees prided themselves on being the very technical and correct lawyers. But this time, everything that was about to happen was going to be the opposite to that. So the guards were acting deliberately and with full knowledge that binding Jesus was illegal. Among the temple guards were some of the chief priests who'd be trying Jesus. Strike three. It was illegal for anyone who was going to be deciding the charges against Jesus to be in the party arresting him, but some of them were. It was illegal for charges to be brought against a person by an informant 
who had been paid for by the people trying him. Annas and Caiaphas, the two head gonzos, had paid for the betrayal of Jesus out of temple monies. That made it pretty obvious that Jesus' trial was going to be completely biased against him. They'd effectively paid for the result. Caiaphas had earlier said it would be better if Jesus died for the whole of Israel. So he knew what the result of the trial was going to be before anything started. That's, that's strike four. and They're not going very well here, are they? After his arrest, Jesus was taken to the house of Annas. Now, that was odd. Annas wasn't the high priest who would preside over the trial. That was going to be Caiaphas. Under Jewish law, there were no preliminary trials before the main hearing. So that's strike five. The other disciples had fled when Jesus was arrested. But Peter and another unnamed disciple followed Jesus to Annas' house and then to Caiaphas's palace. Jesus was questioned about his disciples and what he taught. And Jesus' answer to Annas was fairly simple in John 18, 20-21. I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret, have I said nothing? Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. Under Jewish law, a man was presumed innocent until proven guilty. And this was obviously not how the Pharisees were handling the case against Jesus. Strike six. John 18.22 tells us that when Jesus had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Under Jewish law, it was the duty of the judge to ensure that an accused was protected. Nothing happened to the guard who struck Jesus. He wasn't told off in any way. Strike seven. With Peter and another disciple hanging around Caiaphas's palace, one of the women there looked at Peter. She thought she recognised him as one of Jesus' disciples. Dangerous stuff, I guess, for Peter. And maybe the disciples would be arrested too. A cock crowed. In John 8.17, tells what happened next like this. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou not also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. At the Last Supper, Jesus had told Peter that before a cock crowed twice, Peter would deny him three times. That was the first denial. Annas, after questioning Jesus, sent him, still illegally bound, to the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. The palace of the high priest was not where trials were to be conducted. The trial should have been conducted in the temple, in what was known as the Hall of Hewn Stone. It was a cold night and there was a fire burning in the courtyard of the palace. With other people also trying to banish the cold, John 18.25 reads, And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. Now Malchus, the man whose ear Peter had cut off when he tried to split his head in two, 
a man who could be expected to have had a good look and a good recollection of Peter's face, was the last one to speak to Peter in John eighteen twenty six to 27 Did I not see thee in the garden with him? In Luke twenty two sixty to 62 the answer comes, Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Of all religious books, the Bible is outstandingly unique. It tells the story of people, mostly of very ordinary people. To you, that isn't anything remarkable. You're used to stories about ordinary people. But it wasn't until modern times in 1719 when Daniel Defoe wrote Robinson Crusoe that such a thing started to happen in popular culture. Up until then, stories were always about gods and kings, princes and mighty warriors. Never ordinary people. So the Bible's remarkable in this, as in everything else about it. Two and a half thousand years before Robinson Crusoe, the Bible told stories of the most ordinary people. To understand why this could happen, you have to understand where God fits in. He created the universe, so he was never a part of it. He's outside the universe. Everything that happens in the universe is old hat to him. Time isn't a straight line for him. He sees everything that happens in the universe from the beginning to the end. We have free will, but he knows how we exercise it. So no surprises that the Bible was thousands of years ahead of its time in storytelling technique. But let me tell you more about why this story of Peter weeping bitterly is so special. At the time the New Testament was written, there was nothing stranger or more remarkable in the world than the story of a nobody fisherman, Peter, and how he reacted to his denial of Jesus, a nobody prophet, three times when he realized he'd done just exactly what Jesus had told him he would do a few hours before. I mean, who cared? Peter wept bitterly. In a lot of ways, he was the most enthusiastic of Jesus' disciples. He was the one who walked on the water with Jesus back in Matthew fourteen twenty-two to 33 Well, until it dawned on him what he was doing and started to sink. He was the one, the only one, who drew his sword and fought for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane until Jesus told him to stop. Jesus had to fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah. What's obvious to us as modern readers, Peter's profoundly wounded soul, how deep and unstinting his devotion was to his teacher, Jesus. The torment of his guilt for denying that he knew Jesus and was one of his followers in Jesus' hour of greatest need. The crushing knowledge that Jesus' imminent death meant to him 
Peter that he could never seek forgiveness for his betrayal. The disciples never got that Jesus was telling them that he would die, but he would rise again. And his pain is obvious to us because we've grown up in the culture that sprang from Peter's tears. To us, this rather small and ordinary description of Peter weeping bitterly was probably bewildering to the people who read it at the time. It's unquestionably a crucial part of the story, written more for us today than the people back then. It's a detail that makes Peter's complete breakdown noble. It proves how serious the betrayal was on an emotional level to Peter. It puts into dramatic perspective our common humanity, newly discovered because of Christianity. You have to understand that before this, people didn't think or behave in this way. In this sense, all of us, even the atheists and the secularists and the people of other religions, are Christians in our moral expectations of the world today, in this and so many ways that people today aren't aware of, they take for granted. It's only in Peter, at this instance, when he is a broken man, that we see the image of man in his highest and deepest and most tragic sense. Peter is still just a Galilean peasant. But this story, in its day, was against good taste and what was acceptable. To tell such a story was an act of rebellion against the cruel, heartless, ancient world which, from around this moment, and the events which were to follow, was to die, hopefully forever, despite the best hopes of the secularists to return us to the cruel old ways. In the story of Jesus throughout this day, we see something beginning to emerge from darkness into full view, or for the first time in our history, that every human person, everyone, has an intrinsic and inviolable dignity and infinite value and worth. Human rights that we have because we're all made in the image of God. Today we think of people as we do because of the revolution in moral sensibility that Christianity brought about, especially in what was going to happen in the next few hours to Christ. Today we think of everyone, regardless of social station, race or sex, as having special and unique value. You're a person and you have all sorts of things given to you because of God in the Bible that we all call human rights, which many of us in the West today think is something we have as of a right that comes from nowhere if you see the world through the dark glasses of an atheist. If you were living in the world back at the time of Christ, you would most likely have been a nothing, a nobody. Under Roman law, standing varied enormously from one person to the next. There was none of this rubbish of all people being created equal. The Latin word 
persona means a mask, a face. To have a persona standing under the law was to have a face before the law. Having a face meant rights and privileges before a court. If you did, you were able to give evidence that had weight, value, because you, as a significant human being, said so. You had a recognised social status. But for most people, slaves, base-born non-citizens and criminals, the utterly destitute, colonised peoples, legal personality only existed to a very slight degree. Under the best and the fairest of the pagan emperors, such as Augustus, restricted legal protections were given to slaves. But slaves really had no real rights under the law, no way to protect their rights or their lives by going to court to challenge anything their masters did. Let me give you an example, and it's a great example. It happened about 28 years after Christ had been crucified and risen from the dead. Tacitus tells us that a Roman nobleman, Pedanius Secundus, was murdered in AD 61 by one of his slaves. Under the customs of the day, when that happened, all of the slaves of the household had to be put to death. Approximately 400 men, women and children were executed. There was surprisingly a lot of public protest against the killing of so many innocents. But the Roman Senate decided that the ancient ways had to be honoured. If only as an example, the slaughter would set for the slaves generally in Rome. At no time... In the course of the debate, did anyone come up with the argument that this was against the human rights of the slaves? That was a ridiculous idea that anyone who suggested it would have been thought to have lost their minds. Society at the time of Christ was built entirely on cruelty. To rebel against that was to rebel against what was accepted as perfectly normal. Jesus stood out then still today in a lot of ways, as not being within any such cruel society. The word of a slave, a ridiculous notion in these times, was worthless. A slave had no personal dignity. If the situation was bizarre and a slave had to give evidence before a court, it would be perfectly normal for the slave's evidence to be taken under torture. A slave was a man or woman, non habens personam, literally not having a persona or not having a face. Before the law, he or she wasn't a person. A slave was just something you owned, property. It's important to understand this background when I come in the next program to Jesus' appearance before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to understand how absolutely extraordinary was what happened. Jesus' second trial that night by the Jewish leaders was in front of the high priest, Caiaphas, in his palace. Under Jewish law, Jesus could only be condemned by the evidence of two witnesses who gave consistent evidence. Now again, because Jesus had precipitated the Pharisees into arresting and putting him on trial before they were ready, they hadn't carefully looked for and groomed witnesses to testify against him. Putting the trial on late at night and on the run wasn't working out for them as they might have hoped. 
In Mark 14, 55-59, he tells us, And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. This is strike eight. Jewish law was quite sophisticated, and for the judges trying the case to be looking for witnesses who will give false testimony against Jesus was an absolute no-no. It goes on, for many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witnesses against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. That is, they couldn't get their stories straight. Caiaphas was getting beside himself that arrested Jesus, but they couldn't make out a case against him. They had false witnesses to give evidence against him, but their evidence didn't match, so it was no use to them. Under Jewish law, Jesus should have been set free at that point. But that wasn't going to happen. Caiaphas now approached Jesus, trying to get himself in a position to condemn Jesus to death, which is strike nine because it wasn't allowed for a man to condemn himself. A person couldn't be convicted just on his own evidence. This exchange between Jesus and Caiaphas is recorded in Matthew 26, 62-65. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Again, without two witnesses telling the same story, the Pharisees did not have a case. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Under Jewish law, with the chief priest requiring Jesus to answer under oath after having invoked the living God, Jesus' father, irony of ironies, meant that Jesus now had to answer the priest. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. In other words, you said it, boy. This is the same reply that Jesus gave to Judas at the Last Supper, when Judas, like the other disciples, asked Jesus if they were the ones that were going to betray him. And Jesus said to Judas, you said it. Jesus goes on, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And here Jesus is talking about his second coming. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. Jesus was saying he was the Son of God. But he couldn't be convicted on his own evidence. Strike ten. The Pharisees at this point had no proven case against Jesus. Legally, they had to let him go. Jesus had just uttered words that were blasphemy in their eyes. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with the Son of God saying he's the Son of God, but they obviously didn't think he was, in spite of all of the miracles and verbal clashes they'd had with him over the years, where he always came out on top. But under Jewish law, a man couldn't be convicted on his own evidence. 
When Caiaphas, in a rage, tore his priestly garments, he robbed himself of the legal authority to continue with the trial of Jesus. That was against the law. Moses gave the Jewish people the laws of God in the book of Leviticus, where in 21.10 it says, And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. But Caiaphas continued with the trial. Strike 11. Again, the priest conducting the trial let the temple guards assault Jesus, again against Jewish law, a repeat of strike seven, as told at Mark 14.65, and some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Jesus' trial was conducted through the night. That was against Jewish law. Strike 12. The trial was conducted on a feast day, That was against the law. Strike 13. The trial took place in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. That was against Jewish law. The sentence was passed in Caiaphas' palace. Under Jewish law, the sentence had to be passed in the temple of Stone. It wasn't. The voting on whether to convict Jesus should have been conducted from the most junior priests upwards. One at a time, it wasn't. Caiaphas called for a vote on the voices. Everyone voted at the same time. Strike 14. Under Jewish law, a man could be acquitted on the same day he was charged. But if he wasn't, if he was going to be convicted, they had to wait until the next day. They didn't. Strike 15. Finally, the Sanhedrin passed a sentence in Caiaphas's palace that Jesus should be condemned to death. They didn't have that power. The Romans had taken it from them in 7 AD by the then Roman governor Caponius, and that removal of the authority of the Sanhedrin to condemn a person to death was vital so that the prophecies from the Old Testament would be fulfilled. But that was strike 16. Now as day was breaking, probably really early in the morning, before 5 AM, Jesus was taken, bound, from the palace of Caiaphas, to the palace where Pontius Pilate was staying for the Passover celebrations. What happened here was remarkable, as Jesus was put through another three trials by the Romans and Herod. Thanks for joining me, Paul, for this week's CYKIA program. Next week, the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, very reluctantly gets dragged into this squabble which the Jewish leadership is having with Jesus. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.